Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Anthony James. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, it's a distinct honor to be here. Um, and uh, I guess in sitting here thinking about this, uh, it occurred to me I should have added another slide. So, but I'd like to uh, dedicate this lecture to the memory of uh, Ralph Cicerone, the former president of the National Academy of Sciences, former uh, chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, friend and colleague, and those of you who know him know he was a great person. And, and uh, <laughs> this is... <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to try to do three things tonight. I'm going to describe to you the type of work that we do. Um, I'm going to give you a broad background on the, 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 the background for the, for the topic. And then I'm going to get into a little bit about the science. Now, I'm not going to try to go so deep that I leave those of you who aren't molecular biologists or insect biologists so far behind that, that you don't know what's going on. And if you get uh, uh, a little bit confused and, and, and there's an urgent question, I will take questions in route just to give you an idea of what's going on. And at the end, I will tell you how we think we're going to apply this technology to the real world problems. And of course, after that, we'll have um, the uh, question and answer periods. All right, let's see if I can get this going. So uh, for those of you who um, didn't Google this, all right, <laughs> Zanzara is the Italian word for mosquito. All right, and Vitruviana will become obvious shortly when you imagine this image here, all right, as uh, something that may have been ancient. And this is actually a, 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 um, a picture uh, or, or a graphic developed by one of my, our colleagues, Valentino Gantz, who, in addition to being an excellent scientist, is also somewhat of an artist, as you can see. All right, so each slide has at the top a question that we're trying to answer in the content of the slide. So hopefully that'll keep you on. Uh, on pace for where we're going here. So the first question, of course, is what is malaria? And these are some long words. Intracellular means it's within a cell. Protozoan parasite means that it's a single-celled organism. And this is a smear of a human red, uh, uh, sorry, a smear of a human blood here. And human red blood cells are supposed to be empty. They have no nucleus. So they've lost the nucleus a long time ago in the process of development. And what we see in this blood smear are these purple inclusions here. So a physician who suspects that somebody has malaria will get a blood smear like this, look at it, and actually see these inclusions here. Notice they're inside the cell, and that's where the intracellular comes from. All right? And what they're basically doing is eating the red blood cells. Uh, they're using that as a nutrition source. They're, they're growing in here, we'll see that shortly, uh, replicating, bursting out, and then infecting new cells. And this is the actual stage of the parasite that causes disease in humans. It's mosquito-borne, that is, you can get it uh, generally by being bitten by mosquitoes. It is possible to get it through a transfusion, but of course, hopefully blood supplies are checked so that uh, people aren't getting malaria-infected red blood cells. So it's generally a mosquito-borne disease. And there's a certain group of mosquitoes called the Anopheles, we'll see you later, that are responsible. And this is a typical picture of a mosquito. It's always on the arm of, bite of somebody biting, all right? Every time you see a picture of a mosquito, it's doing that. There's a good reason for that. They're holding still. All right, you can actually take the picture. All right, if you try to catch them on something else, you're chasing them around with your camera trying to get an image. So the easiest way to get a picture of a mosquito is to let it bite somebody, and then you can. <laughs> it's not moving at that point, and it's easier to capture the image. There's a high degree of host specificity. It turns out there are a lot of different malaria parasites. There are some that, in, we'll, we'll see this a little bit later. There are some that infect humans. There are some that infect even lizards, uh, birds. And, and, and rodents, all right? And you probably heard about a bird malaria in Hawaii that's devastating the local uh, uh, indigenous species in Hawaii and a major problem there, all right? The interesting thing about that is that mice do not get human malaria, and humans do not get mouse malaria. And we'll take advantage of this later on as we develop some of the science, okay? But there's this high degree of host specificity. And there are no free living forms of the parasite. They're not out in nature. They're either gonna be in the human beings or in the mosquitoes. So we know where to find them. So when it comes time to, or when we think about ways to controlling transmission, we know where the parasites are. They're in the mosquitoes or in the humans. We don't have to go looking for them in other places. All right, well, how long has malaria been a problem? Well, as far back as the oldest text that we have, and 
I, uh, despite all of my scholarly achievements, I cannot read any of these languages, all right? Uh, this is cuneiform. I think there's probably a handful of people in the world that can actually read this stuff, but, but it turns out that when you do re read it, you find out their shopping lists and things like that. But <laughs> there are some medical texts, and they describe deadly recurrent fevers. So fevers that, 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 that occur on a, on a periodic cycle and that can lead to death. And uh, as long as we've had written language 6,000 years ago, we've had a record of those. They show up in the Chinese text uh, some 2,700 years ago and in the Indian uh, Vedic text. So descriptions of the disease have been around for a long time. So we believe that malaria has been associated with humans for a very long time. The most famous physician in history, Hippocrates, associated these fevers uh, with swampy waters and air. He didn't quite figure out how the disease was being transmitted, but he did recognize that there were specific cycles. You could get it every, every day, every third day, every fourth day, and he noted that, all right? And so he was a very astute observer of that. And then in a very interesting bit of recent science, there's a graveyard from about 450 AD where there was a malaria epidemic. We know now it was a malaria epidemic in Imperial Rome. And what people were able to do was to go in and uh, get samples from the skeletons of children that had died during that and actually detect the parasite DNA. They can go in and recover parasite DNA and make a confirmation that these children actually died of malaria. So this is the first direct knowledge that we have of it in terms of having a DNA sample which is completely diagnostic, but uh, clearly it goes far, much farther back in our knowledge of the disease. So what causes malaria? We talked about it being an intracellular protozoan parasite. Here's another image of a, red blood, a normal red blood cell and a, and a really interesting image of one that has parasites. Once again, they're supposed to be empty for us, okay? And it turns out that there are uh, historically, there were four species that we knew about that uh, were contributing to malaria in humans. They're called, the, the genus name is Plasmodium, and they've got names like Falciparum, Vivax, Ovalley, Malaria. So these are the four classical ones that we know about. Falciparum, as far as we know right now, is the most deadly. Vivax is coming in at a close second here. And these two are, are, are not quite as deadly, and we believe that that's because they've had a longer association with us as human beings. And if you're a parasite, you actually don't want to kill your host. You want your host to be around. And so uh, we, we think that some of the re one of the reasons why these aren't as severe is that they've adapted to living in humans. Now, this is a, a, a parasite. Remember, we said, we, they, we said that these parasites have a high degree of host specificity. This is a parasite that's normally found in non-human primates. All right. But the pressures are on, this, primate, are, are on this, this parasite because the number of non-human primates in the world is getting smaller. All right? The number of people are getting larger. The mosquitoes are still biting. And what we're finding is that this parasite is now causing disease in human beings. All right? And so it's adapting, as we sit here, uh, to the fact that its primary source is disappearing and there's all these other things out there, the human beings, that are, that, are, that are good hosts for that. And there's actually maybe a sixth one that's doing. So, so this is an interesting thing about this particular field is that we can't sit still. This is moving on this uh, as, uh, as we work on it. Well, how do we get um, people get malaria? We talked about this before. They get uh, malaria by being bitten by an infected mosquito, and mosquitoes get it by biting infected humans. So these parasites have this very interesting life cycle where they're either in the mosquito or in the human being. And this is, of course, the picture of the Vitruvian man, the, the famous one, and that's uh, the lectures based on that. And these are images of the parasite here, the forms that are infectious to human beings. So I always make this comment that it seems like a very difficult life cycle. You have to be in a mosquito and in a human being. Then you think about it, though, a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of human beings, it turns out to be fairly straightforward to maintain this cycle. Neither the mosquito nor the human are born with the disease, all right? The mosquito has to get it by biting an infected human. The humans get it by being bitten by an infected mosquito. There are a lot of mosquitoes that can transmit this. We actually have some of these in California, but we don't have the parasites, so there's no transmission associated with that. Okay. All right, so who gets malaria? Well, it's endemic in the poorest countries, and this is an image from the 2016 World Malaria Report looking at places in the world where we have malaria. So the blue here are countries that are endemic in 2016. We can see Mexico. Uh, when they say Mexico, um, actually the, the malaria is down in this region here, but it's counted on a countrywide basis, so the whole country lights up. 
okay? Um, and then, of course, we see it through Central America on some of the Caribbean islands and in South America. And then, of course, this Africa is notorious for the malaria there. And we look at this, we see it's in the tropical areas. And, of course, this overlaps where there are really good mosquito vectors for this disease. Um, 2015, there were about a uh, uh, quarter of a billion cases, 212 million cases, and a, a little less than uh, half a million deaths. Uh, but 90% of these deaths are in sub-Saharan Africa. So these statistics, while they're getting better, uh, 10 years ago, this was closer to 2 million people, and, and the use of bed nets uh, and, and anti-mosquito technologies have brought this down substantially. Um, it's pretty much bouncing around this half a million year, per, deaths per year. And this has called, made, made a lot of people call for um, the eradication of malaria. When we talk about eradication, we mean complete absence in the world. So no parasites in the humans, no parasites in the mosquitoes. So how do we get to, to eradication? Well, the World Health Organization defines some very specific steps that, that can be taken to do that. The first is to get control, which means that, so what we have here is a graph where you have number of cases of malaria, and then this is years, time across the bottom here. So the idea is that with some kind of effort, you get the number of cases to come down, and if you can maintain them at a very low level, and they have a very specific number, it's five local cases per year for a certain period of time, you can be certified as having control, all right? And, um, uh, what ideally you would like to do is progress to the point where you have no local transmission of malaria, and that's called elimination. And what eradication is, of course, is just elimination everywhere in the world. All right? Now, this may seem kind of trivial, but the point is that each one of these elimination efforts represents the efforts of specific countries and specific regions. And coordinating this in a way so that everybody's doing it at once, uh, everybody's you know, trying to make this all happen at once, is extremely difficult. And so we see it as progressive stages. And that's one of the complicating issues with this. Because what that means is that there's always some place in the world where there's malaria, and if you stop your efforts, it can be brought back in. Okay? Now, What's good news is that we do have tools that can work. And this, I alluded to um, uh, bed nets previously, and this is an example of a bed net that's being used in an area where there's malaria. This is a technique called indoor residual spraying. Mosquitoes have this habit, most of you actually know this if you think about it. After they bite you, um, if you have a mosquito buzzing around you in the middle of the night and finally gets you, if you turn on the light, you could pretty easily find it sitting on the wall next to you, right, full of blood, and then you smack it and there's blood and you just think, that's the worst thing you've ever seen in your life, okay? <laughs> but the point is, they can't fly very well after they feed, all right? And so they go to the nearest wall and they, they hang out on the wall and they lose the fluid from the blood till they get the energy back to fly. Well, if you coat the walls with insecticides, you can kill them. And so this is what this in indoor residual spraying is based on. You can spray the inside of a house, the mosquitoes will feed on somebody, go to the wall and be killed. And you can actually block transmission by using this technology. You can eliminate breeding sites. We'll see that the mosquitoes breed in water. And if you control the water, have, regula uh, have an ability to, to, to affect the water, we call this environmental management, you can affect it. And of course, drugs can be used to, in, in many places to control it. So we used to have malaria in the United States. These are maps that are produced uh, in, uh, in 1940. And what we see here is a distribution of malaria. And we can see, of course, it's associated with, this is uh, large river deltas in the United States. This is the Mississippi River Delta. And this is the south, uh, uh, this is uh, the water, uh, uh, the, the very humid areas in the United States. So this is a distribution of malaria. And this is actually mortality. Okay, but using DDT, which came along in 1939, the United States was able to use this and water management technologies to actually become officially, uh, uh, have official elimination in 1951, all right. We still have sporadic outbreaks of malaria in the United States, believe it or not, in San Diego County, because we have the mosquitoes there, and every once in a while somebody will come across the border carrying parasites and we'll have what are called focal outbreaks, all right. Fortunately, our public health system is excellent. They get on it right away, and we don't see a, a, an epidemic associated with that. But the, the message, once again, is that if the mosquitoes are there and the disease is brought in, you have the ability to have a, a local transmission. All right. And so these are some countries where uh, 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 the, the uh, lighter ones are in control stages, and then some of them are pre-elimination stages. But this should show that there is some progress being made on that. So if that's the case, why is malaria still here? All right. And 
It's because in many cases, the current tools we have have been never applied. And that could be for geographical, political, or economic reasons. There are some places in Africa where it's just too dangerous to go to do anything. All right? And as a consequence, malaria is going to persist there. All right? And as long as it persists, it's a threat to the rest of the world because we're keeping the parasites alive. We have a, circumstances where current tools are applied, but they do not work. I, so we showed you um, the mosquito nets, which protect people when they're sleeping at night. And we showed you the indoor residual spraying. And if you go into a neighborhood where there's malaria being transmitted and you apply those technologies, you can find that you suppress malaria quite a bit. But there's still some going on. And that turns out there's outdoor daytime feeding mosquitoes. So it's a whole group that never goes into the house that has a capability to transmit. Now they're, now they're your problem, okay? So this is the next level you have to approach. <clears throat> then, we used to have, then we had circumstances where the tools used to work, but they don't work anymore. And for the insecticides that are being used, that's likely because of insecticide resistance. But we also have significant uh, 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 political um, uh, instability in a lot of countries that used to have, have excellent... <laughs> I, my, my brain got ahead of me there. They used to have excellent health care, but it isn't so good anymore, all right? <clears throat> I'm not going to say anymore, <laughs> all right? Uh, yeah, ixnay on that, all right? <laughs> all right, but as a consequence of that, um, malaria has become resurgent. Okay, and so that, that's problematic. So you need a, a public health infrastructure to do that. So we believe that this then calls for a clear need for better use of our existing tools, things that do work, and the development of new tools. All right, so what are the challenges to eradication? Well, we still don't have a vaccine, all right? There's efforts to develop vaccines, but they're, they're not there yet. Funding is always a problem. This is a disease of, of poor and impoverished people, and it's hard to marshal uh, funding uh, for, for efforts to do that. Drug resistance uh, is, is a major deal. We, we, uh, I'm not going to be talking about the application of drugs to malaria, but um, for those of you who've traveled to areas and had to take prophylactic drugs, you know that they do exist. The resistance is a, an issue there. Public health capabilities, uh, just the ability to treat people with it is problematic. Insecticide resistance we talked about. And then capacity building, having enough skilled people uh, to, to be able to deal with the disease uh, is, is important. All right, so what are we doing about it? Um, well, we're trying to develop novel genetics-based strategies to prevent malaria transmission. So this word genetics is going to come up on multiple occasions, and we'll try to walk, walk, walk you through this here. And the idea is that we're going to prevent mosquitoes, and there's one right there flying around in here. Um, you get really good at this when you work on it, all right? That's not a fruit fly. It's not, I mean, that was a mosquito. All right. <clears throat> um, what we're trying to do is prevent infected mosquitoes from biting people, all right? And the reason we, we like the idea of using genetics, and we're talking about genetically engineered mosquitoes, is that we think that they can be highly effective. They're species-specific, so it's a technology that targets only the insect you're going after because of the genetics, and we think they can be highly cost-effective. Right. So what are the genetic control objectives then? If we were going to do this, what, what, what would be the end point of the work that we're trying to do? Well, the first one is population suppression. We call this no bite. You don't get bit. So if you don't get bit, you can't get malaria. Remember, you're not born with it. You have to be bitten by an infected mosquito. So this reduces or eliminates mosquitoes. And you can think of this as a genetic analog to an insecticide, all right? something that will actually kill the mosquitoes. All right. Um, we have a, a lot of people who are interested in working on this. Um, it, it, um, uh, a lot of efforts are going into this, but it, it, it's subject to what we call in the lab the public health paradox. And that is when public health is working really well, nothing's happening. And so people who are looking, who are responsible for maintaining public health will be looking at their budgets and say, I'm spending $2 million a year on mosquito control. You know, we don't have malaria. I could use that $2 million for something else. They pull that money out of that, and they come back, all right? Because you're not ever going to kill all the mosquitoes. So this works really well when you have uh, resources that you can dedicate to it and use on a routine basis, sustainable uh, um, method for doing that, okay? But a lot of places don't have those kind of resources, and they get into this situation where they have epidemics, uh, 
go after them, bring them down, pull the resources out, and they keep coming back. So the population suppression technology, while it will work once again in areas that have the resources, is not something that usually can be worked on in areas where they, they have limited resources. So we do something different, which has been called population, it's called population alteration now. It started out being called population replacement modification, and now it's called alteration. It has to settle down and get a name. But the idea here, we call this a bite strategy, because you can get bit, but you're not going to get malaria. Now, nobody likes to be bit by mosquitoes, but it's a whole lot worse when they're carrying diseases. All right? So the idea here is we can change the mosquito's ability to transmit the pathogens. All right? So we say, hey, look, we're not going to be able to kill all the mosquitoes. We know that's a problem. A real problem is the pathogen. All right? Can we do something about the pathogen and maybe use the mosquitoes to get at the pathogens? So, uh, just as a shout out to the locals here, um, both of these approaches are being developed here at UCI for preventing human malaria parasite transmission. And we'll explain these images shortly. Yeah. All right. So what are the major research areas? So we're talking about genetic engineering. It, it's a type of synthetic biology. And um, it's, it, it, when you think about it, you, you have ideas about how you might be able to do something. But at some point, you actually have to get your hands dirty and actually do something. I mean, so we have laboratories, and, and for those of you who, who haven't had experience in laboratories, or, and uh, you can think of it as a kitchen or a shop, you know, you can go in there and, and, and make sort of physical, make real the things that you have in your head, all right? It's, it's a way of making things happen. So the first thing we want to do is to show that it's actually possible to make a mosquito that's resistant to, to malaria. So we do this in the laboratory. And if we're successful with that, whoops jumped right to it. We would like to figure out, if, if we make a gene that does that, can we get it out into the field? And this is a very famous person here releasing a group of mosquitoes at a TED talk. Um, it turns out these aren't dangerous, and you'll, you'll see why in just a second. But this is not how we're going to do it, all right? We need a much better method than somebody from Seattle letting go a whole bunch of mosquitoes in an area where there's no malaria, all right? We've got to do a better job. And then we actually need to know what the field is is like, all right, because the biology of the mosquitoes that are transmitting is going to be very different depending upon where you're at. And here we have a, a village in sub-Saharan Africa, which looks very different from the um, Amazon basin, uh, where ha you have houses right on the river, and looks very different from an urban area in India, all right? But there's malaria transmission in every one of these areas. And so you can imagine that the biology of the mosquitoes is going to be quite a bit different in all those places, and that it turns out to be true. So as you move from here to here, you've got to know ahead of time what your targets are to the point where you're making some plans and the design features of the mosquitoes that can allow them to, to work well here, here, or here. All right, well, what should we know about mosquitoes? So this is biological language, but, but it, it's easily uh, translatable. They're called holometabolous insects, which means they have distinct embryonic, larval, and adult stages. And most of you are actually familiar with this in terms of butterflies. You re we recognize the butterfly as having a caterpillar, it makes a cocoon, and then this wonderful animal comes out and everyone's happy about it. It's the same sort of thing. It's not such a wonderful animal, people not so happy. But they have this, this, this sort of caterpillar stage. In this case, it's called the larva. They form a pupa, which would be the cocoon, all right? And then from this emerges an adult, all right? So they have these distinct stages. The significance of this is that the malaria parasites are in the adult. All right, so when we're looking for where we need to go after malaria parasites, our focus is on the adult. But of course, if they're carrying genes, they're going to be carrying genes through all these different stages. Okay? Um, this is really important, and it's not meant to offend anybody here, but it's only fe adult females feed on blood are involved in transmission. So quite literally, it's the females that are the problem, all right, because they're the ones that are feeding on blood. Now, why are they feeding on blood? Well, it's a great source of protein for nutrition and egg production, all right? They are responsible for producing eggs for the next generation. Um, if they fed on plants, they would have to eat a lot of plants to get sufficient protein to make the eggs that they want. So we used to joke and say that these are the, the insects with the original Atkins diet because they had heavy protein-rich diets, and they figured out a long time ago it's easier to get the nutrition you want by biting a vertebrate or a human being or, uh, to get the protein from the blood than it is to go out there like aphids do and suck a lot of sap, you know, just trying to get a little bit of a protein out. Um, so this is, this is interesting because it means we can use the males to get at the females. 
all right, because it's only the females that are a problem in terms of malaria transmission, and that'll come up shortly here. Well, what should we know about malaria parasites? They're complex, all right? This is a schematic representation of a human here, and somewhere over here is a, a mosquito, and they have complex developmental stages, both in the human and, 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 and the uh, mosquito, and the stages that are in uh, the humans except for one, do not grow in mosquitoes, and the same thing for the mosquitoes. The stages that are in the mosquitoes don't grow in humans except for the one, and that's the one, of course, that they, they switch off to infect one another. Okay, so it's complex, it has their developmental stages in both hosts, and this is what's made it very difficult to, to um, develop vaccines. All right. All right. So how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to actually make genes. And we're, we have a very simple bottle of a gene as a two-part structure. Now, most of you remember that genes are encoded in DNA. So there's this molecule DNA in which there's information packages, and those are the genes. And so what we want to do is build two types of information packages. We want to build what's called a control region. And that tells you when and where and how much of something to make. All right? And we're actually going to use controlled regions that we get out of mosquitoes, all right, because we want them to work in the mosquitoes. So we're going, to, we're going to derive our control regions from the mosquitoes. So we call these promoters, and they control this gene function. And then we have what's called the effector portion, and this is the stuff that's actually made. So once again, this is a control region, and this is the effector region. Uh, and this either kills or disables the mosquito or the pathogen. So this is the business end of the molecule. So we use this to tell us when and where and how much of this to make so that we can actually target the, either the mosquito or the pathogen here. So the effector is the antipathogen or, or mosquito gene. And then we, we can build these in the laboratory in twos, but we gotta put them back into mosquitoes. And so we have this technology that's called transgenesis technology where um, you can actually use a very thin needle to inject the DNA, and this is a mosquito egg, into the mosquito. This is very tiny. I have a couple of our colleagues here, and one of them's learning how to do this now, and, and you can talk to him later about how small these really are, all right? Um, and so it's, it's quite difficult initially to learn how to do it, uh, but we need to put the DNA in. So this is a transgenesis technology. So we can take genes out, kind of mess around with a little bit, make things that we want, and then put them back in. Okay, so how do we achieve population suppression? Well, we have this really awkward name, female-specific release of insects carrying a dominant lethal. It's been abbreviated as fizz riddle, okay? But the idea here is that, remember, it's only the females that are problems. So something that's female-specific and carrying a lethal gene could potentially kill the, kill the female mosquitoes. If we have it set up correctly, it won't kill the males, all right? And it's called a dominant lethal because um, one copy of this gene is sufficient to kill, all right? Now, that makes it kind of hard to work with because when it's there, the mosquitoes always die, all right? So we have to make it conditional. We have to be able to turn it off and on, all right? And then we have a few tricks to do that. So this is a genetic analog to an insecticide. Um, this fizz riddle, as we call it, didn't sound very attractive. So one of my former colleagues here at Irvine uh, thought that flight-inhibited female initiative, Fifi, was a better sell, all right? <laughs> but we still stick with this. All right, so how does this work? Well, we release males carrying this conditional dominant lethal that disables females. We use the males to find the females. Now, this seems kind of trivial, all right, but this is one of the driving positive features of this type of technology. There's no organism better in the world than finding a mosquito female than a male, all right? I mean, they, this is their only job. All right, and they're really good at it, all right? So uh, human beings walking around with spirit cans, you can get them all, but you know, there's that one right there. You know? So they're really good at it. So this is a really distinct advantage for this kind of technology. And so this control DNA we talked about, we'd like it to be working in the adult female, because those are the ones that have the parasites, and we would like to be uh, female specific. So a while back, uh, 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 some, uh, the people in our lab uh, uh, discovered this gene, and, and what we have here in the mosquito is the head. This is called the thorax and the abdomen, and most of the muscles are in the thorax here. This is where the muscles are that, that are used for flight, and this is where the muscles are that are used for walking, though they don't walk very much at all. And what she discovered was a gene that is made specifically in 
the muscles of the flight muscles in this part of the thorax here. And the way that she knew that it was made there is she took the control DNA. Remember, we have that control DNA that which tells you when and where and how much. And she hook, hooked it up to what's called a, a reporter gene, all right? That is something that turns on uh, in the color. In this particular case, it's red. Okay, now you ask, where do these things come from? How many of you have been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and, and kind of looked at the jellyfish display there and they shine a black light on the jellyfish and they glow? All right, well the, that glowing comes from what are called fluorescent proteins. So people have actually captured those fluorescent proteins and we can get our hands on them and hook them up to a mosquito gene and so we can actually express that glowing thing in the mosquito. So what we have here is a, a female that doesn't have, you can't see anything because she doesn't have the gene. This is a male that has a gene but it's female specific so you can't see anything. And then here's a female with the gene and she's showing this glowing in her, th in her uh, thorax there, all right? So we know we have a piece of DNA that controls the expression of, of, of something in this flight muscle. So we needed this to be conditional. So here's that female-specific promoter. We have this little trick here where there's something that's, we, we drive something that, that uh, has what's called a tetracycline-dependent activator. This is a protein that binds to this thing here. This is old-school genetics. And when it does that, it turns on this cell death gene. But it, it, it's a dual-gene approach. And what it means is that this thing makes this activator here, so it, it makes it in the flight muscles, because we use that control sequence to do that, adult, female specific. We make this, uh, and, uh, and it's, it's induced there. It binds to this TET operator, but in the presence of tetracycline, it doesn't work. All right, so we can actually rear these mosquitoes, have females, as long as we keep them on tetracycline or tetracycline analog. When we pull that off, all right, this will bind there and we get a female-specific effect. And what do we get? We get females that can't fly. Trust me, they don't like, look, they're trying to take off and they can't, all right? All right. This is the end of the line for them, all right? First of all, they can't get to you, all right? This is, this is a very awkward mosquito. Um, you could easily get away from that one, all right? All right, it's just not going anywhere. They can't mate, all right? So this is the end of the line for them. All right, so this is this female lethal phenotype. It's a functionally lethal. I mean, they're, they're alive here, but they're not, that's the end of the line for them, all right? So how are, we, how are we gonna use it? Well, the way that we're thinking about it can be used is what's called an inundated release. And you're familiar with this in the terms of control of the medfly in Southern California, where they release all these sterile males and every, I mean, I never saw a medfly in California growing up, and I grew up here. I never saw one and started, until they started doing this release program. And we capture them and we bring them in a lab and sure enough, they're the ones that they've been letting out of the airplanes and stuff. So. But the idea is you let a whole bunch of those go, all right? They mate with the wild types and they bring the genes in. So the ones here with red are carrying the lethal gene. The ones that are black are the ones in the wild. You just release a whole bunch of them. They mate with the wild types and ultimately you end up with no mosquitoes, all right? So this is a suppression technology, but you have to keep doing this and they do that here. I mean, they release the medflies all the time. So the sustainable aspect of it uh, is, is uh, exemplified in that, okay? And we'll end up with no mosquitoes. All right, so let's look at this other technology. It's population technology. So we want to engineer mosquitoes with genes that prevent malaria parasite transmission. All right. Well, where did this come from? Well, it turns out of this genetics of vector confidence. I told you before that there were a lot of malaria parasites. Some will infect mice, some will infect humans, et cetera, and they've got this high degree of host specificity. But if you think about it, there are a lot of things out there that feed on blood. It's not just mosquitoes, but there are black flies, there are fleas, um, leeches. I mean, there are a lot of things out there that will actually feed on blood. Not everything that feeds on blood transmits malaria. All right, so there's a certain class of things that feed on blood, Anopheles mosquitoes, that transmit it to humans. All right, so that has a genetic component because it's heritable. I mean, the, their progeny can do it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some kind of genetic uh, uh, component to that. In addition, if you have a species that can transmit, you can actually go in and select from that population, ones that are really good at it and ones that aren't so good at it. So we talked about things that are susceptible, they can they take the parasite and pass it along, and things that are refractory that are resistant to it. And um, uh, 
you can do this by taking these mosquitoes, feeding them on a blood meal that has parasites in them, and then going through and picking out all the ones that are infected and the ones that aren't. And you separate them into two groups. <clears throat> and you do that for five generations, and you end up with two populations that are distinct. One which is really good at transmitting malaria, and one that's not so good at transmitting malaria. And when you have that, you can do old-fashioned genetics. You can cross them together. You can ask how many genes are involved. Are they dominant? Are they recessive? And one of the surprising facts that come out of that, out of that type of work is that in many cases, it's one gene that had a really strong effect on whether or not one, could actually, one of these mosquitoes could transmit and one could not. All right, so single genes could have a very pronounced effect. And when we first were looking into this, we thought, well, that's great, because we're going to make one gene. All right? we're gonna, this is exactly what we want to be doing. All right? All right, so this is where this came from. And the idea then, of course, is we could have somehow introduce this gene that we're making into a mosquito population. It confers resistance to malaria. We should actually see less disease and death as a consequence of that. All right, so what are the benefits of this? Well, we think it could be sustainable because you're leaving the mosquitoes there. They're hanging out of the genes, all right? So as long as they have the genes, they will be resistant to malaria parasites. There's no empty ecological niche. People always ask me, well, you know, if you kill all the mosquitoes, isn't that bad? Well, we're saying, well, we don't have to kill them, all right? We can leave them there. Uh, there'll still be a pain, but um, they, you know, whatever niche they're, they're fulfilling. Uh, this is something we won't have time to go into, but it, with small numbers, they're stable. But this, what is important about this is that it allows these last two things. You can go into an area cleared of malaria and then move your resources somewhere else and work there with some kind of confidence that the area that you've cleared will remain free of malaria. So we don't all have to wake up one night and try to get rid of malaria in one day. All right, we can go place by place by place with confidence that the place we left will stay malaria free. All right, and that's a big deal. All right. All right, so what are, what's our experimental system? Well, we're working with this deadly human parasite, Plasmodium falciparum, and a mosquito called Anopheles stevensi, which is a vector of malaria in, in, in Asia. Um, I put this in for the aficionados there. All right, so what's the strategy? Well, this is, this is a representation of a mosquito. Um, this is the, the uh, female mosquito here. Her, her feeding apparatus is here. She's actually feeding. This is somebody in the lab. Um, and what we've got is a schematic representation of the inside of a mosquito. So we have this structure that's called the midgut. When she feeds, the parasites come into the midgut. And this is the first interaction of the parasites with, with the mosquito. And they undergo developmental stages here. They develop in here, and then they break out of the midgut and go into the open circulatory system. They don't have blood vessels like us. They're kind of like a, a, a lobster or a crab. They've got that hard outer shell, and all the organs are kind of suspended inside. They don't, and, and so the, the um, uh, parasites make their way through to the salivary glands, where they have to infect the salivary glands, where then they're transmitted to the next human on the next bite. Okay? So she, her first meal brings in the parasites. They mature, develop, get out, go to the salivary glands, and then um, uh, are transmitted on the next bite. So we talked about that control DNA, when, where, and how much is something to make? Well, let's be, we're talking, I like to call this genetic engineering instead of genetic modification, because we'd like to imply that there's some thought that goes into this. And so one of the engineering principles is, let's put these molecules where the parasites are, all right? So let's put them in the midgut, the open circulatory system, or the salivary gland. So we need control DNA that will, will make these things make these molecules in these various compartments here. And so we have the midgut, as it's called here, and we have the stages that we can go after. We have the open circulatory system, and then we have the salivary glands. And you don't need to memorize these names, but just know that there are specific parasite stages that you find in each one of these compartments. Okay, so how do we find these control sequence, sequences? Uh, I'm just going to give you a flavor of how the work is done. It, it's not important that you understand the intricacies of this, but this is a quantitative way of understanding it. So what we have here are female mosquitoes that are fed on a blood meal, and when they, that blood meal comes in, they have to digest it. So they turn on enzymes that will digest the blood. And one of these enzymes is called a carboxypeptidase, which is a fancy name for a protein that chews off the end of proteins. So this is how they can digest proteins. And those are, these are the larval forms. This, this signal here is larval. This is males. And this is non-blood-fed females. And this is a female three hours after a blood meal, 24 hours after a blood meal, and 48 hours after a blood meal. And this is a measurement of the activity of those control sequences. And you can see that there's nothing in the larvae. 
all right? There's nothing in males because it's, it's, it's sex specific. But at three hours after a blood meal, this signal goes from zero to well over 6,000. Okay, so here's a control piece of DNA that tells us that, that we can use to, to, to drive something that we, what, uh, we want to put in the gut. Does that make sense? So, so this is a quantitative way of looking at it. So let's do one qualitatively. This is another format for looking at these kind of genes. This is a gene that makes a yolk protein, puts it into the open circulatory system. We have the same sort of thing here. We have non-blood-fed females, six hours after a blood meal, 12, 24, 48, et cetera. This is the, what's called the endogenous gene. This is the, the regular gene that's in there that's making that. And you can see that this comes on, uh, I think, 48 to, 24 to 48 uh, hours after a blood meal. And then we can hook up that control sequence to one of those fluorescent proteins that we talked about and ask, when do we see the fluorescent protein? And this is the image for that. And we can see that we can recapitulate this sort of, we call it an expression profile, with this control piece of DNA. But we can actually see it like that, all right? And that's what this are. This is, these, this is a non-transgenic mosquito. This is the one carrying a gene with our control sequence and our, our test one. And as we like to describe when we've got now little blue night lights, all right? Um, you can imagine that coming at you in the middle of the night. It would be small, though. All right. All right, so that's the control sequences. All right, so what are we actually making now to um, uh, uh, go after the parasite? And I told you before that there's a high degree of host specificity. That is, humans don't get mouse malaria and mice don't get human malaria. So people a long time ago put human parasites into mice, and mice mount, mounted a very strong immune response. And we could go in and dissect that piece of the immune system, the mouse immune system, that actually kills the human parasites in mice, and we can clone it. So it starts with this immunoglobulin molecule, and we can engineer this in a way that we end up with something that's a little tiny, what's called a single-chain antibody, uh, but it's, a, it's the fragment of the immunoglobulin that interacts with the malaria parasite. All right, so we can actually get our hands on that, and we can hook it up now to those control sequences and make it in the mosquito. And so this is what we do. We've got two different kinds. We have one type of antibody that goes after this stage of the parasite, one that goes after this stage of the parasite, and we use that transgenesis technology, transformation technology, to put those in the mosquitoes. And then we do an experiment like this where we have a blood meal. This is an artificial blood meal. These are a bunch of mosquitoes feeding on it. And this blood meal has parasites in it. We feed them that, and we give them an, a little, we give them additional blood meals. And when we look for the parasite stages, and ultimately we look in the salivary glands for the forms that are infectious to humans. All right, so this is just sort of a development for this. And what do we see? So these are, it's easy to see. These are the number of parasites in salivary glands and controls, meaning ones that don't have the gene. And these are the number of parasites in the experimentals. So we can actually make a mosquito that has no parasites in that salivary gland. It's sisters and brothers that don't carry the gene, can, do just, can transmit just as fine, but these, are, these don't have it. So this is great, all right? A nice, cute laboratory trick. How are we gonna get it out into the wild? All right, so we've demonstrated this in the wild. So it could be inundated releases, like we talked about with the, the, the suppression technology. We could couple this with that killing gene, and the same time we're lowering the population, bring our gene in. Or we can do something which is called gene drive. And this will be the last part that we talk about here. In this particular case, we have a circumstance where in a single release, all right, with a gene drive technology, mating with wild type, all the mosquitoes will turn into what we want, okay? And so, what is gene drive? Well, it's a preferential inheritance of a genotype, or in our case, specific set of genes, all right? Um, this circumvents what are, it's called the Mendelian patterns of inheritance. We'll see how that works. A drive mechanism is the underlying biology that's responsible for this, and the system is the final product that, that achieves this preferential. So, so, what are the genetics of gene drive? Well, we talked about this Mendelian inheritance, and I apologize for those of you that never took genetics, but it's, it's fairly straightforward here. Um, this is a circumstance where you have a gene and it has two forms. You can think of this as being brown hair and blonde hair. And when you cross a blonde, blonde, the brown hair and the blonde hair together, the progeny usually will have brown hair, all right, though they're carrying genes for both. And if you cross those to a, a blonde-haired mosquito, um, half the progeny will have brown, half will have 
uh, blonde. So people don't have large families anymore, but blue eyes run in my family. I've got five brothers and four sisters, and half of them have blue eyes, and half of them don't, all right? So this works. Now, <laughs> I'm obviously older than I look, right? <laughs> look. All right, with gene drive, we think the same thing is going on, okay? But when we do that cross, they're all brown-haired, all right? So what the heck is going on? All right. Well, what's going on is there are specific drive systems uh, that make this happen. So the one we're working with is one that's called CRISPR-Cas9. And we have a chromosome, and there's a target gene. And we build these constructs where we have pieces of those target genes. And then we have this enzyme called the Cas9 nuclease, which cuts DNA. And then we have what's called the guide RNA, which uh, cuts specifically in this particular gene. Now the reason this is significant is that cells don't like to have their DNA broken. If you break DNA in a cell, it will stop everything until it fixes that DNA. So um, the reason radiation works on cancer cells is it breaks chromosomes and those cancer cells won't divide until they try to fix that, that damage. And so that's one of the reasons why that actually works. You can also do that with chemicals. The idea is you're breaking the chromosomes and that causes the cells to stop. Okay, now um, we're fortunate in cancer that a lot of the cells in our body aren't dividing. It's only the cancer ones that are. So when you do the irradiation, it doesn't affect the ones that are not dividing, but you, you know, hair comes out because those are dividing. But the, but the ones that are dividing rapidly are affected. So this is a very basic principle. You break the DNA, cells gotta deal with it, okay? And they deal with it by trying to fix that DNA. And if we sneak in a piece of DNA that has something that we want in it, and here this Cas9 which cuts and where it cuts, um, it will try to use this to repair that damage. So we have what are called homology arms which guide, guide this little fragment there. And so what happens is it cuts, right? it, it, it's desperate now to fix itself, and so what it does is it uses this to fix itself, and when it does that, it pastes that in. Okay, so now we, this is how we put what we want into a chromosome. Now once this is in the, in the uh, mosquito, it's carrying this enzyme and this guide comp component here. So it's in this chromosome, here's our target gene, all right. But it's still functioning, so it carries along and duplicates that. So that's how we go from, when it started out there was only one copy, now there's two. That's how we go from 50% to 100%, all right. And we built something, and this, this is the same sort of image you saw before, but I wasn't going to walk you through this, this sort of thing. Here's our target gene here. We have the guide RNA that cuts here, and we have the enzyme that cuts there, and we put this into mosquitoes. And so it starts looking like this, and if it works, it'll cut, and this thing will move over. Now we have a marker here. We have that red eye marker. Uh, we have a red eye marker, which we'll see in a second. We'll skip this part here because it isn't relevant for what I'm going to show you. So if we have a male that's carrying this gene, and uh, we cross him to a female, these are actual data here. The pink cells here represent all the progeny from this cross that had red eyes and the ones that didn't have red. And you can see there's like uh, there's uh, uh, 3,500 of them that have red eyes and only 48 that don't. All right, so this is a, a strong bias to moving this gene in the population. And it's kind of hard to see here, but that's that red eye phenotype, okay? So this is going through the male. We go through the female, at least at this generation, we see the same thing. Here we've got 1,700 to three, okay? And uh, because of the way this is set up, these eyes will turn white, and now you can see this red. And so this is our marker. But the point is that we're getting this almost 100% and every animal that comes from this cross carrying this red eye marker, and we've hooked it up to our malaria genes. All right, so it's moving along. So you can think of this as a, we call it a gene drive system. We think about, you know, well, it could be the truck and it's carrying a cargo kind of stuff. All right. Our people are concerned about accidental releases, so we set up some cage experiments where we had a one-to-one -one ratio of our males with wild-type males, and if you release them into a, a cage population of mosquitoes, the red here are the red, so this allows us to monitor. You can see that within seven generations, this will sweep into the population, okay? Interesting enough, for this construct, if we put only in one of these transgenic males, sorry, for every 10 males that are there, it doesn't quite take a hold. So there's a lot of people worried about things that we're working on the laboratory getting out and spreading like crazy through the field. You're gonna to have to build something better, at least at this point, for that to work, and we're not 
we're not interested in that aspect of it. We want to just have an impact on malaria. All right, so what will it take to happen? We'll finish off with this here. Well, the first question we have is scientific. Can it be done? Can we actually make these things? So we talk about translatable science. Do we have transgenesis effector genes and release strategies? And I think we've answered that question. We have this question about regulatory. May it be done, all right? Um, do we have a, a functioning regulatory system that can actually deal with genetically engineered organisms, contain experiments, and ultimately open release of these mosquitoes? In addition, whoops, it jumped on me. Well, I'm missing a slide here. It should be social. Should it be done? Okay. And um, the question here is that can we work in communities where there is an ethical way to release genetically engineered mosquitoes? Okay. And the idea was that there was going to be a Venn diagram where it actually said yes. All right. And the idea is for us to find the sweet spot, so to speak, to actually work that out. All right. Well, this turns out to be a little bit harder than you might imagine because if I were working on a vaccine or a drug, there's, always a, there's already an established pipeline where if I come up with something in a lab, we call that discovery, I can feed it into this pipeline. It'll go to development and delivery. So for any drug, there's this sort of phase diagram. Insecticides have this. For vaccines, this also exists. But for genetics-based vector control, this doesn't exist. So at the same time that we're making this sort of product that you can imagine being applied to malaria, we also have to develop the pipeline that's important for that. And so working with the WHO, the National Academy of Sciences, and other people, we've, in analogy to other types of, of uh, procedures, we've come up with a phased approach for this. So phase one are laboratory studies, where we test, we make the insects, we test them in uh, uh, cages, uh, going from smaller cages to larger cages. Phase, if they meet all the design criteria for safety and efficacy, we can go out into the field. We can have a contained trial, which is in a large cage in the field, or we can actually imagine having an open release on an island somewhere that's geographically isolated. Some countries may ask you to do both, okay? But should the products meet the design criteria for safety and efficacy of phase two, then we talk about going to staged open trials. And here, we're starting to ask, does this have efficacy against malaria? And if we get to the point where um, it is demonstrated to work, then we can put this in um, the larger program to try to eradicate malaria. Significantly, at every one of these stages, we have regulatory oversight, community engagement, and communications. We, we intend to be very open about this. All right, so what are the take-home messages? We can make genes that when added to mosquitoes, suppress them or make them, make them not transmit malaria parasites. We have a way to actually spread them very quickly through populations. So we think that these strains could have a major role in sustaining the malaria control elimination as part of the eradication agenda. However, we need novel regulatory and community engagement activities before these mosquitoes can actually be used in the field. All right, so this is a, the last two images here. This is to remind me, to remind you, that I don't believe that our technology alone is going to be sufficient to eradicate malaria. So these mosquitoes have specific applications for places in the world where they will work very well. Other places, they're not likely to work. So we need the full complement of activities, therapeutic drugs, insecticides, surveillance, prophylactic drugs, diagnostic tools, et cetera, before we're going to actually get to eradication. All right, so we're just part of the, the overall picture. I'd like to acknowledge um, uh, the people who have worked in this. Some of them are in the room here. Uh, various institutions over the years, funding, of course. And thank you for being an attentive audience. <laughs>